So this morning we're going to be in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. This is Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna. Now a couple weeks ago I got to teach Sunday school and the lesson started out talking about leadership. Good leadership, bad leadership. And it brought to my mind, I worked for a guy for years, he was my manager, and I had the joy of working for someone who hated people. I mean, he just did everything to make other people around him miserable. And it's amazing the difference in your life it makes when you have someone who enjoys people, who wants to build people up. And we can see that in our own lives, how easily it can affect our mood and how well we accomplish things if we are encouraged. When I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the first summer we were in Indiana. I had heard about this ride for several years, and I thought, well, I'm living in Indiana now, I want to do it. It was called the Rain Ride, the ride across Indiana. It was almost 160 miles in one day, and I put out an open invitation on Facebook to all my friends, do you want to do this with me? And I had two people say yes. One guy was a guy I had ridden with before, and he far exceeded me as a cyclist. The other guy, who is my, is my cousin, who was a physician in the military and had gone up in rank and was spending about half his time in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon and the other half his time at his home in Indiana. And so when it came for the day of the ride, my cousin that didn't have the time that summer to train kept falling behind. He kept falling behind, and we kept trying to wait, but we kept losing him, and we got to the lunch stop. We waited almost an hour. We were about 95 miles in at this point, and he came up to where we were at, and he said, I'm just, I'm done. And we tried to say, well, you can keep going. No, 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 I'm done. At about mile 150, there was a mile and a half long hill, and I was done. But my friend who far exceeded me as a cyclist never left me. He stayed right there by my side and he kept encouraging me, Craig, you've done 16 and a half miles an hour all day. We are almost there. You can get this hill. Keep going. And my legs burned and my lungs burned and I was so tired and I couldn't feel my hands and I was sunburned and I was miserable, but I was almost there. And he kept saying that over and over again. And I finished. And then I collapsed. <laughs> but I finished. And I think without that encouragement, even though there was only a few miles left to go, I may have well given up on that hill and said, I'll get it next year. I needed that encouragement. And when I think about that, we think about these people in our lives who pour into us like that. Our passage today has good news in that Jesus Christ, the God of eternity, our Savior, wants to see us do well and he wants to encourage us. That's good news. And so be encouraged by the Lord. No matter what you're facing in your life, be encouraged by your Lord. I'll read through the passage. It's a short letter. To the church at Smyrna, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2. So Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. 
Jesus speaking here, dictating this letter for John to write, says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus, as with all seven letters, starts it out by addressing the specific church he wants to talk to. And here it's Smyrna. Smyrna was, like Ephesus, also a seaport. It was about 40 miles north of where Ephesus was at. Late in the first century when John wrote this, this was a large city. They estimate it was around 100,000 people. In that time, that was enormous. And it was also a very wealthy city. And actually, for this city, it, it still is around today. It's called Izmir now. And interestingly enough, some almost 2,000 years later, its population has only doubled. It's around 200,000 people. But Jesus addresses this church that's in this wealthy seaport city, and he addresses them as the one who is the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Now, why... Why would Jesus choose this church to address himself that way? Remember I told you when we looked at chapter 1 that the description of, chapter, of Jesus in chapter 1, the one who is dictating this letter, is used in the seven churches. And in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus describes himself, or John describes Jesus as the one who is and was and who is to come. And then in verse 18, the living one, Jesus described himself, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And there he's expressing that not only was I dead and died, it's this idea that death can't hold me. This is who I am. I am greater than death. So Jesus describes himself to this church that way. Well, as we saw when we wrote, read through the passage there, this is a church that is facing tribulation. They are facing consequences for their faith. Interestingly enough, their name, Smyrna, the name of the city, the, the meaning of the word is bitter, but it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word for myrrh. One of the gifts brought to Jesus by the wise men. Myrrh was the main export of Smyrna. And myrrh at this time was used for the preparation of the dead. Right up my alley. It probably smells better than the stuff that I had to use though. It's interesting with myrrh, again in scripture we see it in Matthew 2, it's brought by the wise men because it was used widely around the world at that time for preparation of the dead. It's, it's a kind of prophetic picture of Jesus' mission there as being a gift to a baby 
And we see in John 19, 38 and 39 that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus in John 3, Joseph of Arimathea asks for Jesus' body and they put it in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And then they take about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe, a mixture of the two, to take and prepare Jesus' body. This is what it was used for. And interestingly, myrrh only becomes fragrant when it's crushed, which I think is something really interesting. You look at this at the church and what happens when the church is persecuted. And these believers, I'll mention it again later. I was going to save it for them, but I'll mention it now. Jesus doesn't have a condemnation for this church. Remember, he had all those good things to say about Ephesus, but then he also said they lost their first love. There's nothing bad to say about the church in Smyrna. They're facing stuff we can't imagine, and they're doing it well. And so it's, it's this, we get this picture of this myrrh, and as it's crushed, it creates this beautiful aroma, or at least an aroma that they used for taking care of the dead. These believers should have read these words to see who Jesus was, that he was not just a man that they have believed in, that he has existed in eternity past, that he came to this world, that he lived his life, that he died for them, and then he was more powerful than death. Thinking about that this morning, I, you know, announcing that two loved ones of this congregation have, have gone to be with the Lord. That death is, it's something that as we, live longer and longer on this earth, we become more and more accustomed to that it's just the natural order of things. That things live and they die, whether it's a plant or a pet or our loved ones. And as believers, we understand that's a cause of, that sin brought that into the world. It's not how God created it. But that Jesus was able to break that cycle and that's the hope that we have. And so as they face these things, Jesus, this is his, the beginning of his encouragement to them. This is who I am. He's revealed his image of who he is to John in the first chapter, and he reiterates to this church because of what they're going through, that I am the eternal one. I am the one who defeated death. And this is it's a true comfort. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus is telling them that he knows, and again, this is the form of the Greek word, it's it's not like a growing in knowledge, that he has this complete, comprehensive, full knowledge of everything that they're going through. Yes. You may be going through a tough time and a friend calls you and says, hey, you know, I heard this happen. And you say, well, you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you all the other things going on in my life. And you might be blown away. Oh, my goodness, I had no idea. That's not Jesus. As we saw, he is among his church and he knows what's going on and he knows their tribulation, the things that they are facing. These Christians are experiencing that tribulation because of their testimony for him, and he wants to encourage them 
that he's not far away. He knows what they're going through, and this needs to be a comfort that we hold to dearly as well. No matter what's facing us in our life, that Jesus knows. And when we're out there living our life for him and sharing the good news of the gospel, and if we're ridiculed for it, or whatever happens, that he knows about it. It says, Jesus says here, these tribulations they're facing. What tribulations were they facing at that time? And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he, when describing the early church, he talks about Nero. I mean, Nero, the terrible things he did in killing Christians and having them eaten alive by lions and dogs and lighting them on fire, all these terrible, terrible things. But the emperor at this time, Domitian, I mean, this wasn't a picnic for Christians either. He was the one who started some 25 years after Nero, the second persecution of Christians. He made a decree that no Christian who was brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. So if, if you were accused of being a Christian and you had the right to be taken to tribunal, you had to renounce your faith. Or you didn't even get a trial, you were just killed. Fox's Book of Martyrs also said that there were a variety of fabricated tales during his reign that were composed in order to injure Christians. It says, such was the infatuation of the pagans that if famine, pestilence, earthquakes afflicted any of the Roman provinces, it was laid upon the Christians. These persecutions among the Christians increased the number of informers, many for the sake of gain, who swore away the lives of the innocent. So if people knew you were a Christian, they would tell on you because they would be rewarded for telling you because Christians were bad. They were the cause of all the problems. I saw a mug once that said, in my family, I'm the responsible one. If something goes wrong, I'm responsible. That's what the Christians were. It blamed everything on them. And so people would rat them out for their faith and they were being killed for it book continues it says another hardship was that when christians were brought before magistrates a test of oath was proposed at this time people worshiped the emperor and so if you were brought before the magistrate and accused of being a christian they would make you say that you worshiped the emperor as a god and if you didn't you could be killed and instead if you you wouldn't renounce your faith if you said that you were a christian you would be killed you were given no choice you either worship the emperor and denounce that Jesus guy, or we're going to kill you. This is the world that they were living in. Jesus also said that he knows of their poverty. And this isn't just that they were poor. And we live in one of the richest nations in the history of the world. And so poor to us is hard to even, it's hard to even understand poverty at this time. I mean, at this time in the Roman Empire, there were very, very few who could be called affluent. And they all had high positions in the government. And there were even fewer that lived a life that would be lower than what we would consider middle class. And then at the very bottom, there were a good number who were slaves, but all of those in the middle lived well below what we would call the poverty line today, where they lived absolutely day to day. And if you fell and broke your arm and you couldn't work, you might not be able to feed your family and survive. And so when we look at this and their poverty, 
what we're probably looking at here is that because they were Christians, they had been cut off from the society around them and they were not allowed to work. Or if you sold goods, no one would buy your goods because they knew you were Christian. And so they were becoming increasingly and increasingly poorer. We saw, you know, when you read Acts, you see in the church in Jerusalem, this mutual sharing and selling of properties. It was needed because of that. This wasn't government-formed socialism. This is Christians who loved each other, giving to one another because no one else in the world cared. They hated them for their faith. And Jesus says, I know about that too. And it's one thing to want things in life. It's another thing to look at your children that you may or may not be able to feed tomorrow and say, is my faith worth that? And they were saying, yes, it is. Jesus said, I know what you're going through for me. And Jesus said, because of what you're doing, you're rich. You think of Jesus saying there that they're rich. You think of Jesus in Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of me. I mean, there he's, he's pointing towards these future rewards for people to go through this, and he's telling them that here. You're not building up stuff here on earth that's, ultimately worth nothing. You are building riches that will last for eternity. Jesus, going on about their persecution, talks about these Jews who he, he calls a synagogue of Satan. What he's saying there is not that this is some new offshoot of Judaism that has begun outrightly worshiping the devil. What he's saying there is even though they, they were claiming to be committed to God, they were like Paul before his conversion, where it was all about Paul. Look what a good Jew I am. I'm going to go kill those Christians. It was all about him and the law and how good he was. And one of my favorite sayings, Dr. Charles Ryrie said that Satan is the great imposter, that he likes to see what God is doing and make something similar, but he always leaves out Jesus. And so the Jews who Jesus had come to first and they had rejected even though from Abraham on, they should have known what the plan was, they were too focused on themselves and their ability, in their, at least in their own eyes, to carry out the law. And so they reject Jesus and crucify him. And then they reject his followers and they persecute him. And so that, it's not they're outrightly worshiping Satan, but they are doing Satan's work for him because of their own pride. Anytime there's a, a religion that may have a lot of things that sound pretty good, you go to the crux of the matter. Who is Jesus Christ to you? How do I gain eternal life? If Jesus Christ is not the eternal God of the universe, if I don't gain eternal life with God by anything other than faith alone and Christ alone, then you're an imposter. You are a synagogue of Satan. And they draw down those who believe. Continues in verse 10 with his encouragement to them. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And today... In Sunday school, we were looking at Joshua 1, and God, in 
the face of going into the promised land and these armies of giants, God continually gives Joshua this encouragement, be strong and courageous, I'm with you. Now that's a specific promise to Joshua for what he was about to face. We can take a greater encouragement from that, but Jesus here tells them, I mean, don't fear. They don't have to fear because of who he is and what they have to look forward to. The devil was going to incite their enemies to rise up against them and to put them in jail. I read a quote that said, Under the Roman legal system, imprisonment was usually not a punishment in itself. Rather, it was used as a means of coercion to compel obedience to an order issued by a magistrate or else as a place to temporarily restrain the, the prisoner before execution. I think that's what Satan is doing here to this church is that it's great to kill Christians because that may keep someone else from wanting to become a Christian. But you know what would be even better is if I could throw that man in jail and he'll renounce his faith so he can get out of jail and feed his family and then I can have him be this example to everyone else. See that? Jesus means nothing. That guy walked away. That guy walked away. And that's what Satan is going for. And Jesus tells him, don't fear. I'll get to it later, but he, Jesus told his disciples in Luke 5, don't, don't fear people that can take this life. That's not who we're supposed to worry about. Interestingly, there, there are a lot of different views on the 10 days that Jesus is prophesying here. Some people think that this is a reference to persecution under 10 different Roman emperors. Others see these days as symbolic, undefined periods of trial. Other people think this is pointing towards the seven years of tribulation. You know, these days could be a month, they could be a year. This comes up a lot when people look at Genesis 1 and the Hebrew word yom can be used in Hebrew as a literal day or it can be used as a thousand years or anything in between. But in Genesis 1, we see Yom with sunrise, sunset, identifying factors like that make us know that God created the earth in seven literal days. Here, we have nothing in this text that says this is anything other than a literal 10 days that were coming. But Jesus was telling this group of believers don't be afraid, this is coming. And you may say, well, 10 days, it doesn't seem like that bad, but I've never been in a Roman prison in AD 96. My guess is it was pretty awful. And again, if you were, who was feeding your family or taking care of your livestock or doing whatever it was you were supposed to do? You couldn't miss a couple days of work without it having this enormous effect on your family. And risk starving or being sold into slavery or all these other things. And so Jesus said, you're going to face this. Don't be afraid. And he tells them, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Again, he's going to use it again in the next verse, but this be faithful is the participle of the Greek word nakia, which we call an overcomer. Overcoming obstacles being faced with opposition and making it past. Whether it's the lunchtime break or the hill that's five miles from the end, 
you keep the legs pumping and you make it. That's what Jesus is saying here. You need to just keep going. You're doing so well. Keep going. And I will give you the crown of life. There's promises to each of these seven churches. And I think when we get to the end, I want to look at all of the promises. But this is a, a promise of eternal rewards. That it's a, he's not saying if you do the work, then you're going to have eternal life. So we'll look at in the next verse. He's saying you're going to have this fullness and experience of life. We've looked at, at Romans 8, 17 2 Timothy 2.12, that if we endure with him, we will reign with him. That for those who stick with it, that there is going to be this future experience in heaven, that while there will be no tears there, no sadness, we will all be experiencing, all who have believed will be experiencing eternity with God. That for those who are faithful, that God is going to give them this opportunity to reign with Jesus. And that's what he's describing here. Be faithful, follow through, and I will give you the crown of life. Concludes in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So again, that when it says here that he who has an ear, let him hear, we see this. This is Jesus turning from just the church at Smyrna to all of them, giving a general truth. And his general truth is that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So this statement raises a question. Do I have to overcome to have eternity with God? There's some who try and get around that saying here by saying that, well, overcoming here is believing. That Greek participle for Nikea is never used in the New Testament for believing, ever. And so to say in this instance that's what it means, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense that this will be the one and only time that yes, this means believe. So if we're looking in the context, we can't look at the verses that are to come because those are the next letter, but the immediate context, the verse before, Jesus says, if you overcome, I'll give you the crown of life, this eternal reward, this full experience in the life to come and so the way I see this is that gaining the crown of life in verse 10 is equivalent to what Jesus is using an understatement here in verse 11. And let me explain what I mean by an understatement. That as he's turning to this application for all the churches, Jesus states, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. When we look at different ways this is interpreted, another way is Armenians would say that, well, you see, if you don't do the good works, then you lose your salvation. And there are those on a reformed side that would say that if you are a true believer, if you actually believed, then you will have eternal life, or you will, you'll overcome. You'll make it to the end. If you fall away, it proves you never really believed. Both of those views put more of a condition on living forever with God than faith alone and Christ alone when they try to interpret this verse. He says, you have to have faithful obedience to me until you die to live forever. I think this is a complete contradiction to verses like John 5, 24. Turn back there with me. 
We'll start back in verse. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, which we will see at the end of Revelation, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. It's a, it's a current possession. And the greatest thing about eternal life is that it's eternal. It can't go away. That if you have it, it's never going to end. It's never going to go away. In Sunday school, we looked at this morning at, at Hebrews 11.1, 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That when we look at what it means to believe in Jesus, it's knowing that he is going to keep his promise. It's being assured of that. Assurance is the essence of saving faith, that I know that it's true. Anything you think about, do you believe this or not, it's not, I think, I hope, I want. It's, I know it's true. And when we have that faith that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that when he said that he was going to give us eternal life when we believe in him, then we have it. And he proved that by going to the cross, dying, being buried, and rising again that we can know for sure he has paid for our sins and that he has the power over death and the power to give us eternal life because he proved it when he came out of that grave on Easter Sunday. And so if we believe that, and we look at this verse, when I said it's an understatement that to say that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, there's a figure of speech in Greek called a litotis. Latotes is an assertion that understates one reality being referred to. So a biblical example could be Hebrews 6.10. It says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown in his name. What it's saying there is he's definitely going to remember. It's not a he may or may not forget. It's he will remember. You're understating one thing to prove the point. So when he says in verse 10, I will give you the crown of life, he's saying in verse 11 that your life in eternity will be so full that even the thought of the second death touching you is a ridiculous thought. That these believers were so far beyond the reach of the second death that it couldn't even be imagined. And Jesus wants these suffering believers in Smyrna to rest in that knowledge and that hope that the Lord himself is giving to them. So as we conclude, as we look at this church, this church that Jesus had no condemnation for, but that whom he was encouraging to keep on, that in the midst of their trials, he's saying, you're doing great. Keep going. And he offers this hope of him rewarding them for their faithfulness to him, the reward they will experience for all of eternity. The story I was going to is that Jesus tells the crowd that if they leave their families, their homes, and all this, that so much more will be given to them. 
And of course, it's Peter who says, Jesus, we left everything for you. What do we get? You know, Jesus didn't chide him for saying that. Jesus said, you all, when I am sitting on my throne, will be sitting on pillars ruling over Israel. That their reward for their faithfulness, especially the faithfulness that would come after he was gone, was that they would get to reign with him. I think what Jesus is trying to point to this church is he was pointing to his disciples and he pointed out to many those who he called to follow him as disciples to sacrifice themselves, to take up their cross and follow him, was he wanted them to have an eternal perspective. And if we look at the vast majority of Jesus' teaching and the vast majority of the New Testament for that matter, it's not about how you get to heaven, it's about how you live this life for God right now. So that one day we can come stand before him and hear, well done. Eternal perspective. Realizing that this life I'm living right now, I'm 40, whether or not I die today or I die in 50 years, that compared to eternity, this is nothing. It's nothing. And so if our country falls apart and we are now subject to persecution for who we are as a believer, we keep on proclaiming the name of Jesus because that's what he wants from us. And that no matter what we face here on this earth, it is so temporary. The strongest I've ever seen of a testimony of having an eternal perspective are from those that I've seen who have lost children as believers. And although they may cry and have grief, they know in their hearts that they will get to spend eternity with that child. And they look forward to it. That it may be natural in life, even though it's hard to lose a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a friend, that you somewhat expect that. But when you lose a child and you, you, you had their whole future thought of and what you wanted for them and it's gone, and yet you know in your heart and you have joy like David who got up from his morning and said, let's eat. But that's eternal perspective. And so we need to have that in our own lives that it doesn't matter what I'm facing here. I'm, I'm out of time, so I'm just going to briefly mention it. I mean, Paul, a great passage to read anytime you're facing something that's really hard. Read 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27, even through 12, 10. Paul will list for you all of the things that he went through. And yet he kept doing them because he has an eternal perspective like he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, the passage about him, that we all run a race, but only one person wins. Everyone who, you know, is running a race is disciplining themselves. That's why he says he disciplines himself so that he can finish. He wasn't questioning whether or not he was saved. He was saying, I want to get there and hear, well done. I want to be rewarded by my Lord for the things I have done on this earth. And as you face these trials, remember as James says in James 1, that these are the things that bring us to perfection. So I want you to be encouraged by three vital truths I see in this passage. That Jesus, the eternal God, knows exactly what you're going through. Everything. Second, the things of this earth are temporary. And third, that everything we do is bringing glory to to God. 
I mentioned it a long time ago. I did a Bible study last year for Transitions on Ephesians. And the author of the book we were going through called us trophies to God's grace. That there, there's nothing we ever could do to earn salvation. There's nothing we could ever do to keep it. And yet God gave his son to save us so that when we live with him for eternity, we will forever show off his grace. And for those who choose to live their life for him, to be overcomers, are doing it out of love for him. And so for all of eternity, if they're given a chance to live and to reign with Jesus Christ, they are, I mean, they're the first place trophy. This isn't about what I want for me. This is I want to glorify God for eternity through what I did for him right now. And that's, that's what I see here. When I see Jesus encouraging this church, let's be encouraged by it. Jesus is our encourager. He's the eternal God. He knows what we're going through. But he also knows how short this life is because he has existed in eternity past and eternity future. And he wants us to show off his grace.